Alan Parker said, sometimes with the British film industry, it's hard to know if we're waving or drowning. Let's find out. Welcome to another BritFlix.com podcast. My name's Stuart Wright, and today's guest is Ivan Kavanagh. Hello, Ivan. Hi, Stuart. Welcome back, I should say, as uh, both of our sketchy memories of 2014 yeah. <laughs> um, recall that we did we did speak to each other about your previous film, The Canal. Yeah, it was um, four years ago now, I think, wasn't it? Or almost f- oh, five years ago. My God, yeah, 2014. Yeah. 2014. Yeah, time flies. Yeah, we did. We did a preview podcast during uh, Fright Fest, which is the I think that was the first year I did the preview series at Fright Fest. And wow, have this, you done every year since? Or, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. I did 31 podcasts this August. Amazing. Yeah, it was. Um, it's it's actually quite refreshing to speak to someone I've already spoke to before because when you speak, yeah. I more or less spoke to thirty one <laughs> strangers, which yeah. is which is which you've got to keep some levels of energy up. I can tell you. Yeah, I'd say so. Yeah, because you, you try you're trying to judge whether someone you know wants to talk and doesn't want to talk, what how they like to talk, you know, yeah, all, yeah. all in the preamble. Um, exactly. Well, look, sir, we've not come to talk about my history of the podcast. Uh, we've come to talk about your new film, Never Grow Old. Um, so before we go into any details, do you want to give a brief synopsis to what Never Grow Old is all about? Yeah, sure. I'm terrible at this, by the way. Um, it's about a, um, an, an, an undertaker in 1849. He's on the California Trail in, in, in America, he lives there with his family. And they're on the outskirts of, of this town and they're just about getting by. You know, they, they just just about uh feed themselves and but he's more ambitious the gold rush is going on at the time in, in california and he wants to go further west but his wife is wants them to stay she wants to play it safe then one night these outlaws come to town led by john cusack dutch albert and when they take over the town the body count starts to rise and as the body count starts to rise so do patrick's the undertaker's profits and then he has this moral dilemma about how he's earning the money and uh, he, th- he thinks he has the outlaws on his side. He thinks he can outwit them, but it's only a matter of time before the uh, violence comes to his own doorstep. That's about it, I think. No, that sounds about right. It sounds about right. Um, <coughs> now, from what I understand on your, your extras, this is a film that sort of from, from, from start to finish has probably took 10 years to get here. Yeah. Um, do Do you recall where 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 it was when we spoke when when Canal was getting released? What 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 part of the process was it that then? Do you remember? I remember uh, the, the Canal and Never Grow Old were very close to financing at the, at the very same time. So I said to both of the producers, whoever gets there first, I have to go with. You know, I have to make a film. So it just so happens that uh, Park Films, who who, who produced uh, the Canal. Uh, got theirs off the ground first. So then the guys at Never Grow Old, Ripple World Pictures, put things down, put them, put things aside until I was ready to get going on it again. So, um, uh, so after the canal happened, they got a bit of uh, got great reviews. Um, it was sold worldwide. It made things easier to get the Western off the ground then. So it came together pretty easily then after that, you know. Got you, got you. Um, now. I'm fascinated in, in, in the way you describe the writing of it. Um, you, 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 oh, I, I'm, I am going to refer to your extras because it, it seemed it seemed daft not to uh, see, see how you've already talked about it. But you you were, and this is what's on the DVD of the of the release of Never Grow Old. Um, you talked about writing a treatment first, just to get the basic story of what we now see as Never Grow Old. 
But then you say you then went looking at old photos as as a way of expanding your view of what the story might be and what it might become. So, in a sense, can you describe how how photographs help you write a story? <laughs> well, it's because, it's because I think it's because um, most westerns I've seen in the past ten years or so have have gone the spaghetti western route, you know, which is probably not the most realistic. Some of them are, or some of them aren't. Tomorrow. I don't know, they're operatic and there's something else, you know, and that seems to be in people's minds. That seems to be what has become the Western now. When I remember I was telling people over the 10 years I'm making a Western and they immediately referred to spaghetti Westerns. And it's as if as the, it's as if the whole history of uh, Westerns had disappeared except for spaghetti Westerns. So when I, I wrote the treatment in about a day or, or so, it was very quick. And it's pretty much as you see on screen story wise and, and plot wise and structure wise. But then I started to look at the photographs and, and, and you realize these are real people. These aren't stereotypes or Western movie stereotypes. These are real people. So I wanted to make a Western that was grounded in that reality rather than in, in, in a, an operatic, uh, a copy of a copy of a copy of another Western, you know. So I even said it to the crew. I said, um, let's not look at other Westerns. Let's, let's just uh, go back to the source, go back to the photographs. And of course, we'll come back with the same results that other filmmakers came back with, like um, like uh, Michael Cimino on, on Heaven's Gate or McCabe and Mrs. Miller by Altman or The Hard Hand by Peter Fonda, stuff like that. But I just wanted it to ground it in this reality that these were real people with real lives, real worries and real hardships, you know. And I thought that'd be a good angle to take it from, you know. I am... Um... Uh, it, it's interesting how your your main character, and because you've sort of grounded in 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 in, um, in that reality, you don't give us what what you would call the the archetypal hero to start with. In fact, I'd I'd argue that that um, his wife is more is more of a hero. She the, is the hero the of the piece, yeah. To the Absolutely. story, in many yeah, senses. Yeah. But it's it's really interesting how you pivot your story on on sort of sort of. There's two, there's two, there's two points that I thought were really interesting to pivot on. There's early doors. There's this town isn't isn't really for us. We should carry on our journey west. And it's kind of like, mm, well, I think I think Audrey's like saying, well, you know, well, we're settled here. And then obviously things change for the not so better. And then it's Audrey that wants to go, and then he's not so keen to leave because he's making the dollar, um, which are fairly simplistic sort of motivations, aren't they? Really, it's. Like, um, so, wh- wh- where where did you think they'd be? Because because often I mean I have to find it like just just something like the need for money is never is never dramatic, but it it really works in this instance because it shows you what's got uh, Emil Hirsch's character of Patrick stuck. Yeah, yeah. Well, money is life, you know. Uh, <laughs> whether we like it or not, you know, uh, it, it's they need money to survive, you know, and. I wanted to make a film as well, though, where everyone has their reasons, you know, uh, everyone has their own. Everyone thinks they're right in their own way. And every everyone is kind of right by their own reasoning. You know, um, I don't think I don't think Patrick is doing anything wrong, as in this is the way he does make a living. You know, it's just it's just be, it becomes he loses sight of things. He becomes more he becomes greedy. You know, uh, I think she's more of a, a pragmatist. Uh, she's she said, OK, we have it's hard here, but it's not too hard. We're not starving, you know. So let's just settle here, you know. Uh, where he sees, he's really bought into the American dream, and um, uh, it, it turns into the American nightmare for him. I think, you know. 
But uh, they're both right in their own way, you know. Without a doubt, yeah. This, this is this is the thing that the the, the points of view is you're, you're 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 very much in the grey area of everybody's moral relativity, aren't you? No, but there's. No, I mean, obviously, Dutch Albert is is the villain in black, as it were. But I'd even say that Dutch Albert, as as with John Cusack's character, is perfectly right from his point of view, as a, as as a reaction to the time, as in. It's it's bad because he because he because he, he he is an imposition on some people that don't buy into him. But how is he meant to survive if it's not like this way? Yeah, and he and he and he's doing everything by the law. You know, he's I I know he's cheating a little bit. He's he's a, he's a but but he's um the way John saw him, John Cusack saw Dutch Albert was that Dutch Albert never tells a lie. You know, um he's he, I mean he does. Take advantage of the situation and 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 kill people, but they pull the gun on him first. They always do in the film, you know. And also, he he starts a, a business. He buys the business. He doesn't rob it of Jim Emmett, the the the, the saloon owner, you know. Um, and so the way John saw him was, uh, he John liked to intellectualize everything about the film, you know. And he he saw he saw Dutch Albert as the personification of capitalism, you know, pure capitalism. It's the pure logic, pure coldness of capitalism. And uh, I like that, you know, I'd never thought of it that way. And he, he, uh, John brought a lot to the film, um, thinking about it like that. I was going to say, so when you write a character like Dutch Albert, who's obviously, who's, who's meant to be that dark cloud that, that sort of begins to envelop everybody, you know, whether they like it or not, um, and whether they fight or not even, um, what, what, what? From what you put on the page, and then what John Cusack was able to bring to the character when you began shooting him. What, what, what did he bring that was was a surprise to you, and what, what really brought Dutch to life? Well, it's it's the way he played it, um, uh, John. He 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 underplayed it. He 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 spoke in almost a whisper, so much so that the sound guy was worried about whether we would pick up all of his dialogue. You know, um, and I thought that was a brilliant thing you know that was much more sinister i i mean all the words are mine there are they as they are on the on the page but what what he did i saw the character as a much more flamboyant and bigger character you know but but he he brought it right down to a whisper he was a very restrained character and that restrained politeness made him much more terrifying you know also something i, I really like to do with with actors is to um i give each of the actors their own character history so they know the complete history of the character before we begin filming you know and like it's about ten pages or so. It's about the history of their life. They can take it or leave it, use it or not use it. It's up to them. But most of them find it quite helpful. But with John, he came back with a book of his own ideas about the the history of this character, which I, I thought was great, you know. Um, and he really, really threw himself into it. He had he had amazing ideas. He was really collaborative, and uh, he just went for it. He was he was a, he was a great guy. Do you remember, do you remember any a specific one that really sort of lit your imagination up when he said, you know, what about this for uh, for Dutch? Well, it was more the ideas of where he had come from. You know, he saw the idea that he wore, the character wore layers of clothes, that the character would have picked up uh, clothes from people he killed. And, uh, and you know, um, he, he, he thought that maybe he fought in the Texas wars against the Comanches as well, which is how uh, Dum Dum got his um, tongue cut off. That Those sort of little details just helped to ground the character in some sort of reality so he could he could have a history, you know? And also, uh, he improvised the last line of the film, which I thought was brilliant as well. The last line of Dutch Alberts, uh, which, which he said, um, you're American by blood, he said to um, 
he said to Patrick, John just came out with that. I thought that was amazing. So I kept it in, you know, and one or two other lines in the film, he improvised as well. Um, and every single take of John's was different. He gave me something different in each one. He never stopped um, playing with the words um, and giving. He was really generous with the other actors as well. He'd, he'd, he'd um, give them something to play off. He'd, uh, and I was so um, annoyed that I didn't have two cameras running because sometimes when I had the camera pointing at another actor, John would come out and so, come out with something that was amazing. But uh, it wasn't caught on camera, you know. It's just <laughs> amazingly inventive, and he brought so much to the character. Um, well, I was going to say because in addition, in addition to the sort of um, the understated delivery of his of his talking, there was also, I mean, he be- I mean, at some stages he barely even looks under from under the brim of his hat. I mean, I watched the film with my wife, and it was, and, and I I'd noticed it was John Cusack from the, the moment it started. Like, but it was part way through she went, "That's John Cusack." And yeah, like, yeah. it's almost like she'd been watching Dutch <laughs> Albert for the first half hour. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I love that, that, that he, he, uh, it's like a, um, it's, it's like he, he let the character take himself over. He didn't care about his looks. He saw him as a kind of a grotesque character, you know. He, um, applied his own makeup to make himself more grotesque looking, you know. Um, he saw him as a kind of, um, a world weary gunfighter that, you know, uh, that just wants he kind of wants it all to end. I always got the feeling that Dutch Albert wants someone to kill him, you know, which is uh, but but it, for him it's kind of all boring. He's seen it all before. It's it's you know it's a, oh it's another person pulling the gun on me. We have to go through this again, you know. Uh, um, and I love what John did with the look at him. I mean, he picked his own hat, his own coat. Um, yeah, and it was a complete. Um, he, he, it was like he didn't care. It wasn't a. Um, uh, he didn't care about his looks or anything. It was just he was the character, and that was it. You know, I thought that was brilliant for someone who's who's so high profile and yeah, 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 is, is a movie star. You know, now as 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 you say, the Dutch Albert is very much um, a, a man who's whose who's, who's word is bond. But he the men the men who he works with, and, and you mentioned Dum Dum. I thought that was that was a fascinating proxy a proxy character of Dutch Dutch Albert in a sense because. He's the one that menaces the Tate family more than Dutch Albert in the way that he goes about things. So I'm mean, obviously by extension, it's it's like Dutch Dutch Albert doing it, but but you're doing it through a very specific character who who though though he's obviously not he's he's not one of the main ones. It it, it still feels really well drawn and it doesn't it it, it 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 feels really insidious the way that that character sort of gets into the Tate family's life and obviously causes causes all causes all the turmoil um where where were you where were you drawing that character from i don't know where the where the origin was for i i just saw i i kind of liked dundon because um he again everyone has their own reasoning or own reasons for doing stuff but but i i i thought that uh dundon was genuinely in love with uh, partridge's wife you know uh, you can see that in that horrible scene where he uh, in, in in the shop where he tries to touch her face and, and she pushes him away, you know, uh, you can see tears in his eyes, you know, and he says he says to her, I love you, you know, it's just so happens he, that he's a psychopath, you know, um, <laughs> and uh, I, I know that uh, John Cusack saw him as a kind of a dog figure, he was yeah, kind yeah, of Dutch yeah. Albert's dog, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. but he's very shaggy looking you know, and um I thought it was interesting that he couldn't articulate himself, you know. It was um he's a kind of pitiable character in a way, you know. A very dangerous, uh horrendous character, but very pitiful pitiful as well, you know. 
Um, I, I never get to forget the first time I read um, many years ago. I read uh, Last Exit to Brooklyn, you know, the Hubert Selby Jr. And that really opened my eyes to uh, he, he writes about these characters that do and say horrendous things, you know. But he, at the same time, he's great sympathy for them as well. And, and I try to get that into Dum Dum as well, you know. Um, uh, they're all human beings, hopefully, you know. Now, the, the, the uh, again, again, just just picking up some of the sort of um, characters that orbit the main the main characters. You've got the mother and daughter who who have got no money and no way of earning money, and and I think in a way they all. I mean, it, that was the bit that was the main the characters that my wife and I were talking about the most after because it felt like they they did epitomise that that idea of you know what capitalism really is when there's no when there's no safety net. Yeah, it's merciless. It, it's it's just, just, you know, if you have no money, you're gone, you're dead. And I, I think um, uh, the world is probably getting back to that again, you know. And I mean, we have a, a gigantic homeless problem here in in Ireland, you know. And it's just like the apathy of of governments and and people with money. It's just, you know, it's it's astounding, you know. But but yeah, they are they. They they have no rights in the town. They go to the town. They go to the church for help, and everyone turns them away. And then they're they're they have no choice but to do these terrible things, you know. And and uh, they have they've when they, when they go to see Dutch Albert. That's uh, when when the mother goes to see Dutch Albert and asks to work there. Again, he he presents her with perfect logic. He gives her the choice. You can either he says you can go home and starve to death or work for me. You know, of course, there's no choice of. At all, but the way he presents it is very—it's—it's it's just capitalism speaking, you know. Uh, you either work, do whatever you have to do to survive, or, or you starve to death, you know. Um, and uh, John really loves sticking his teeth into that one. He thought that was that, that that was the centerpiece of the film. I think so too. With um, with 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 obviously with, with with all that kind of the harsh realities that you were trying to bring home in the film. Um, Molly McCann and uh, Quinn Topper Marcus as they take children. There's a there's a lot for them to do emotionally speaking and to to experience as as characters. How 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 do you as an adult director <laughs> take children into that world so they can be it, but obviously not affected by it? Um, well, you, you make it like a game. So, so they're not aware. They're not really aware of the, of, of what's going on. So we, you let them into all of the process. You show how how show them how things are done. You know, I mean, I remember Queen was big into the makeup effects and stuff. He was just wanted to know the the technical aspects aspects of how it was done. You know, and once that is opened up to them, then all the fear and all that goes away. You know, and it's about keeping their mood up. Making they had a great time. You know, and 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 basically they just lived in that muddy world. That they loved every minute of it. Money, a minute of, of it as well and the way I work with children as well is to uh, let them improvise as well um, let them improvise around their, their characters you know uh, there's a scene in it where the little girl is singing a song outside the, uh, as the mother is packing just before Cicely comes to the house and that was she just starts singing so I just started filming and she didn't even know I was filming and uh, things like that I just you have to keep it as spontaneous as you possibly can with children and keep them their mood up and and, and like it's a game to them, you know, uh, and don't expose them to anything that's upsetting or anything like that because um, uh, they they just shut off then, you know, it just doesn't work. And the same with the kid in the canal. He had uh, so he had really intense scenes, but he was never afraid because it was like a game to him, you know. And it's what children do naturally. It's it's just playing. It's make believe. And once you once you explain everything to them, everything to them, they understand that. Um, 
so it's very easy then after that. Got you, got you. What what made you decide on um, sort of French and Irish as a as a pairing? Where where would they have, where where do you imagine they would have sort of met in on their travels? You know, settling in America, or would they have come? Yeah, together? I mean, they, well, I know where they met because it was in the character histories. They, in, in my mind, they met in New York at, at a dance organised by the Catholic Church. You know. <laughs> And, uh, he just happened to, to start to, and, but that's the way it was back then. It was, it was, it was, uh, the people who that far west weren't Americans. There was Americans there, people second, third generation Americans then, but it was mostly immigrants, you know. And, and in 18, by 1849, two million Irish people had, uh, had emigrated to, to America because of the famine, you know. And, uh, it was mostly a mixture of it was German, it was it was French, it was Irish, it was English, it was, you know, all nations. It was a mixture, um, so that's that part is really realistic, you know. Yeah, because because I, I can imagine that with the way you describe it like that, then partnering up with someone is almost is, is your first life raft of settling down, isn't it? You're not on your Absolutely. own. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, and uh, yeah, sorry. I was just gonna I was just gonna say um, for the. Um, for the for the look and feel of the film, what what were you, you now from from what I understand from your um, from your extras, uh, your conversations with Piers McGrail about the cinematography on the film was was your shared obsession with old lenses, um, films of the seventies, a lot of colour, and dark source lighting were the things that, that I noted down. Now, I, I hear I hear a lot of filmmakers talk about old lenses. What is the fascination? What do old lenses do that new lenses don't? Well, the new lenses are a lot faster, you know. They they, they let in more light. So you get a more pristine, uh, flat look for me, you know. You see it in a lot of TV. Um, and it's the reason um, I think, I don't want to say anything, because to, uh, <laughs> uh, to say for me, uh, the, the most disappointing thing, say, about a Marvel movie is, is the look of it. They, 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 they're they too they're too clean they're too does a TV look to them for me you know in my, in my mind but 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 uh, with the older lenses you get more grain you, you're able to get it's less perfect you know I mean for me the the, the, the films of the the westerns of the 70s like um, and the early 80s like uh, Heaven's Gate and and, and uh, uh, Heaven's Gate and um, The Hard Hand and stuff and, and McCabe and Mrs. Miller is the imperfections in the lens you know it's 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 the graininess, it's the distortion in the lenses, the anamorphic lenses. They're so beautiful, you know. They're they're, they're so filmic and and so cinematic. They just transport you to another world, you know. Um. So uh, you wouldn't use it on. I mean, although we did use older lenses as well with the canal, and uh, of course we used the um a, a thirty five mil camera from from nineteen eighteen as well on, on the canal. But I always like to go back. Um, to get that older look, to get an older feel, because it's just so much atmosphere, you know. And I miss I miss shooting on film as well. Um, it's cl- getting closer, you know, with the Alexa. We shot this on the Alexa, but it's still not absolutely there yet, you know. With, with film, the moment it comes out of the camera, um, out of when you develop it, it's just beautiful. It's just, and again with film, I love those imperfections. I, lo- I love the crackles and the pops and the. And and the uh, edge fogging from the light and um, and that every every single print if you're making a print of your of your film is different. It's no, no two are the same, you know. Um, but saying that, uh, I couldn't have made this. I had a shot on film. It would have been something like seven hundred and fifty thousand uh, euro 
bit more expensive uh, and digital does give you the chance to shoot much longer takes which i like to do as well and you don't have to worry about how many takes you do either you know so it's it's uh, there's pros and cons to both what does i just i mean i've never heard the phrase before what do, what does dark sauce slicing mean what 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 does it in, 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 well it means it means it means I think probably what is this from the interview I did on the DVD? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah I have to tell you when I did that, I had to, I think I did uh, like fourteen hours straight, and uh, they stuck me in a room and said we have to do the interview now, and I I haven't a clue what I said, you know, to be honest. <laughs> uh, and when you're in the middle of the film and you, they're asking you what it's about, and and you don't really know, you know, because you're thinking about the the minutia rather than the full picture, you know. But anyway, yeah. Uh, if I said dark source lighting, I think it would probably what I meant was under underlit, you know, um, just allowing the darkness to seep into the corners of the rooms, um, making making nighttime feel like real nighttime. And it's something that I always admired in um, in Clint Eastwood's film, Unforgiven. If you watch the nighttime scenes in that, the blacks are really rich and crushed, you know, they, they feel like real night, you know. And that's what I wanted for this film. I wanted it to feel like real nights, not 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 film nighttime where you can see for miles. Now this had to be frightening darkness the way it is, real country dark, as Alex says in the Clockwork Orange. You know, <laughs> when when you're referencing films like McCabe and Miss Miller and Heaven's Gate, then and you and you and you and you and Piers are looking at the stocks, the stocks they use to film to make those films. What 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 do you when when you're trying to recreate that in digital? How much testing time do you allow yourself for that kind of thing? Um, well, we did a lot of testing. I remember on the canal just to get the right look, the the right look. But um, uh, Pierce is so experienced now because he's done something with fifteen features since the canal or something like that. And also, we trust each other so much, and and we have a shorthand when working together that we didn't really need to do any tests. We just knew that these were the results that we were going to get. However, we did one day, just one day of tests of the actual equipment that we got in Luxembourg. So we got brought the Alexa out, we put the lenses on, and Pierce shot a scene from the film. We shot a scene from the film three ways. And we went into the screening room and I picked the one. And the one I picked was the underlit one. And he said, okay, that's the look we go for. We're underlighting it. So it was just one day, you know. Whereas on the canal, it was much longer. It was a week or two of tests we did just to get the look that I wanted. The film is set, what, Nebraska? No, it's set along the California Trail, which went from the the east to the west coast. So it could be anywhere. I'd say it's probably uh, the Midwest, uh, the edge in Nebraska. But Nebraska didn't exist then. It was called Nebraska Territory, which is a vast, unexplored area of, of America, you know, um, Western America. So it could take place anywhere along on that trail, you know. I don't want to leave it, leave it open so people wouldn't be saying, that place didn't look like that then, or, or whatever, you know. But but in terms of like watching the film, you you don't ever you don't ever disbelieve that you're you're on, you're on that trail that you're in this western town this western frontier town, um. But you shot it in Luxembourg and Ireland. Yeah, in the west of Ireland. Yeah. The camera, the camera. I mean, obviously, Kubrick famously made many films that were you know even. Docklands of Docklands of London for Vietnam, um, <laughs> which is uh, always, and I think uh, I think a Jimi Hendrix biopic set in London was all shot. That's in Dublin, right. Was all That's shot right, in Dublin. Yeah. That's uh, right. So it's a, and a funny a funny fact there with the canal as well that the house we shot in for the canal was the same house they shot in for the Jimi Hendrix biopic <laughs> apparently. <you know? laughs> Fantastic. So, but but you as a filmmaker, how do you gain confidence that you're going to 
purvey, you're going to be that you're going to purvey, you're going to convey that authenticity when you're looking at a woodland in Luxembourg. It's 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 the, again it's the photographs. Um, it was I, I was looking at the photographs again. It was mostly from Nebraska. You're right, and and it was um that rocky, hilly, barren landscape. I was looking at them, I mean, you'd think it was the west of Ireland. You'd think it was Connemara. So I felt instantly confident that we could do it. Also, I had an amazing um, uh, uh, production designer, John Leslie, a guy, a guy from Northern Ireland. And uh, me and him worked together, talked together for about two years. And uh, we planned absolutely every single object in there. And, and we plan ways of making it a more enclosed world than other Westerns. It's more claustrophobic than other Westerns. And again, it's the lenses, it's the cameras, it's it's just enveloping people in this atmosphere, you know, and eliminating all aspects of the landscape that would look, make it look like Ireland or, or Luxembourg, you know. And in Luxembourg, I found this amazing valley, which is where we shot. And I had these red rocks. It was, they were full of iron ore. And uh, it was a mining place, and and and, and it was a, it had that red look that you get in some parts of America. So once I found that, I knew we could, we could pull it off absolutely. But again, it's about controlling what's in, on 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 the screen, you know. I mean, probably if I panned it, the camera to the left, this is a dead giveaway of where we are. And if I panned it slightly to the right, it's the same, you know. So it's always about controlling what's in the frame. And, and no, no, you know, I'm reminded of um, there's a famous quote from Kurosawa where he was he was asked about a, a certain scene where the, the horses are all the, the seven samurai are all riding to camera, and somebody said, "Oh, that that shot really encapsulates this, that, and the other." And, Ka and Kurosawa said, "Well, to be honest with you, he said there's an airport to the left and a car factory to the right, and they couldn't yeah. be in shot." <laughs> that's funny you should say that we had a factory not far off where Patrick's house was as well and uh, at certain parts of the day we had to stop production because we could hear the every single day there was this whistle that went off for, I don't know why for it was this factory whistle that went off for, off for about half an hour or so and we didn't know what it was we couldn't get them to turn it off and uh, again if I had to just move the camera just slightly to the right you would have saw it but who cares it's all about what's on on screen you know no totally and and, and it's interesting you mentioned Luxembourg because because uh, only because for me because um working with uh, Keith Bell who produced um Dog Soldiers set in the Highlands shot in Luxembourg oh I didn't know that that's amazing yeah yeah, 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 yeah some yeah. interesting films and um uh, Terence Davis' film uh, Sunset Song has been sh was shot there as well. Uh, it's supposed to be Scotland, isn't it, or something? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, uh, oh, yeah. No, I didn't know that either. Yeah, yeah, some good films shot there. <clears throat> now, um, you 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 talk about uh, this. When I say that, you, you talk, in your in your extras, you talk about you, you preparing shot lists for the whole movie with uh, with peers. No, um, I, I, if I said that I'm wrong, I, I, I prepare a shot list for the set pieces. So um, oh, okay. the hanging, for say the hanging scene or the death of Dum Dum or um, when Sicily kicks down the door with okay. uh, the wife. I may have misheard you, sorry. Uh, and but, 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 however, what we did, what I did was I sat down with uh, Pierce for three days and I went through the script with him and I, I said what type of camera movement I want in each scene or where I want the camera and stuff like that, you know. So when, when we began, we knew the type of shots would, that would be in each each scene and we knew the exact exact shots that would be in the more complicated set pieces like the hanging yeah and the fire the fire the, hang, the hanging scene is um is is, is sort of, although obviously the hanging is the central part of of of, of why why we're, we're sort of engrossed in it all the stuff that's happening around it is it's it's like a microcosm of the film isn't it yeah yeah it's 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 i think it's the 
it's the turning point in the film as well. It's it's where where Patrick there's no going back for him then morally, you know, and and uh, he, he he kind of builds his own gallows, you know. He, he's doomed the moment he he builds that gallows, and um, but I wanted yeah again I wanted to see everyone's point of view as the hanging is going on. So you see Dutch Albert, he's sipping coffee. He doesn't really care, you know. This is just another thing that happens, you know. Uh, we see Dum Dum, who doesn't even look at the hanging. He's looking at Audrey, you know, and uh, the wife because he's obsessed with her. And and you see the you see the um, the the preacher. He finally loses it. That that's when he cracks, you know, at that moment as well. And then you have Patrick underneath the gallows, who knows what the hell have I done, you know? And then yeah, you're right. I never thought about it that way. It is a kind of microcosm of the film. It's where everyone's. Uh, story comes to a head and then it's downhill from there for everyone else after that. <laughs> yeah, know? exactly. But, yeah. I mean, it's interesting, isn't it, with 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 Patrick because because he has that he has that um, that self damning line where he says, "Well, I'm the town carpenter. I've got to build the gallows." <clears throat> Whereas there's kind of like it's almost like it's like every, like we 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 make in life we we make excuses for a lot of things, not necessarily is on the same scale as building the gallows, but you know, in a sense of what we're we're duty bound to do. And presenting ourselves with no choice as, as a reason for moving forward, as opposed to... I well, could it's the same, thing, same thing as well, people. I was just following orders. There is no excuses for anything that horrendous, you know, I don't think, you know. But again, again, and by his reasoning, he's doing nothing wrong. He, he is the town carpenter. Somebody, somebody has to build the gallows for the sheriff. And the sheriff is the person who's supposed to be upholding the law of the government of Amer the United States of America, you know. Um, and I don't know, it's it's really messed up situation at, at that point. You know, the sheriff, he's trying to make a point, but he's doing it with the wrong person. Now, um, now I'm going to say, I think I think the other thing is, is that um, given given what given the, the, the idea of a frontier town, given the idea of law versus lawlessness and rule of law versus bullying and um, an almost authoritarianism, in a sense, um, you, you you could say you, you, you've you've made you've made a film that sort of almost plants the seeds for um, for where we are now in America. You know, in the sort of the the, the rule the the rule of law that the gun seems to uh, still have. Um, but it's always been like that, isn't it? It doesn't matter who's in. I mean, Trump is horrendous, but it's always it's not because of him. It's always been like that, you know. Um, I think he's just more disgustingly open open about it. You know, he just doesn't. Just doesn't care, you know. Uh, whereas when I began writing it, uh, uh, George Bush was in George Bush Jr. was in in uh, in uh, was president, you know, and uh, his policies were horrendous as well, you know. It was just, it was. Uh, I mean, they invaded Iraq. He pretty much invaded Iraq on a lie, and 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 he he did it to avenge his daddy. <laughs> you know, it's it's like a Western plot almost, you know. Uh, and and um, I remember I never forget the first time I went to America. It was in 2003. I had a short film at the Slam Dance Film Festival there, and um, I, I was amazed at how polite Americans were. It was uh, yes sir, no sir, yes ma'am, good morning. You know, it was just it was like it had been in a Western almost. You know, that that old world uh politeness hadn't gone away but then oh, you'd go home to the um motel room at night and you'd turn on the local news and you see these horrendous sh domestic shootings and and murders and you you realize that 
what's you think you know what's going on here you know it's just the whole the society is 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 grounded in this violence everyday violence but there's a politeness to it as well which is kind of frightening which Dutch Albert has you know and also the the whole of America is is founded on the genocide of the Native Americans as well so America is founded on the gun and on violence whether whether they like to admit it or not you know and that's something I wanted to get into the into the western and that's what it's about basically no, and, and, and given given what would have been Pat, Patrick's motivation to leave Ireland, which would have been you know the tyranny of um, colonialism, to 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 go to a country where it's uh, you know it's more dog eat dog than what than 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 the, than the colonialism he'd left behind. That's right, and, and if you read, uh, I read a lot of the letters, the correspondence and stuff, for diaries and stuff from the period. And you realize that there's a lot of disillusionment there from people who came from Europe, you know. They had it pretty bad in Europe. Uh, they could never, because a lot of them were serfs, and uh, they could never uh, legally own their land. Um, they always had to work for a landlord and, and give over their crops to landlords and stuff. When they went to America, what they did have, what they could have was they could own their own land. But what did that mean exactly? You know, I mean, but it meant they were on their own. You know, they had to grow their own crops, and if the crops failed, they'd starve. If they weren't making money again, they'd starve. It was it was a really harsh, horrendous life, you know. And um, and it was it was completely unforgiving and relentless, and it, they had to work every day. Uh, and if you listen to the hymns of the time as well, we have three hymns from the period in there as well. It's all about how life is going to be better on the other side. How, are, how their misery of, the, of everyday life is going to end soon and won't it be wonderful when we're in this heavenly place, you know? And that that heavenly place they thought was going to be America, but it wasn't. It, it was it turned into hell. It was, again, it was the American nightmare for a lot of them. Now, as, as, as with the performances um, and the characters... And the and the look and feel of the, the place that you shot one of one of the one of the you know the icing on the cake as it were that sort of lends this film um, its authenticity is um, is the sound design of it. Um, you could you could almost you know you could you could wince at the, the you know the unoiled hinge you know and, and and feel the feel the chill of the of another passing wind just going through town. Um, what where where does the where does the sound design feel? fit for you in terms of a priority when you when you're making when you're making the film well for me and, and it's the same with all my films and the canal and the films i made before that sound is just as important as as the image you know um it's half the film absolutely and i, I think it's so underused still in, in films for most filmmakers uh some some not so much i mean there's masters at it like david lynch and and uh the Coen brothers are pretty amazing at sound as well. They've really subtle sound designs as well, and they really use sound. But um, for me, it's it's half the half the experiences. I mean, I wanted to make a film where I always want to make a film where if you close your eyes, you can you can um, imagine yourself in that world. You won't even have to see the pictures, you know. And um, that came for me. I remember I was on a plane years ago, and I uh, watched. Um, it was a long haul flight, and 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 I, I watched. Uh, they had nothing good on, but I watched. Um, uh, rear window three times in a row and uh, the last time I, I just closed my eyes trying to sleep and I just listened to it and I was thinking wow this is an amazing sound design I, I, I w almost want to live in this world he's created just with sound you know and that's something I, I've tried to do um, with every film I've made just make a complete sound world and I've been really lucky with um, the sound designer Asa Hand who I've worked with on the canal as well that He's willing to put as much work as I do into creating that sound world and make 
for me, it's like every sound is it's like a uh, like a musical composition almost. Every sound has to be just right, you know. And, and when we go in, when I show the film to the sound designers, uh, I kind of dictate uh, what type of sound needs to be here, where the sound needs to be building. It's almost like a piece of music, you know. Mm. Um, so. And it's something when I'm writing as well, I, I, I always think of sound. I sometimes write it into the script as well. So it's absolutely, it's half the film. So what? So you, 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 you sort of give yourself those reminders within, within, as you're writing it, you go, yeah, this is, this is how it's going to sound right now. Yeah. I mean, um, I've, I've been told that over the years that my scripts are quite descriptive compared to other script. I mean, there's a, there's a fashion now to make very lean. If you, I've been offered quite a lot of American, um, all trash, but uh, all American scripts. But y y the the depressing thing is that they seem to be written by the same person. Uh, they feel like that because they're all for uh, following this formula of writing. I don't know where they get it from, but it's think, a very I lean. Script, I think script reader notes. <laughs> it could be. It could be. That's where it is. I'm not sure. But anyway, it just feels very... It doesn't envelop you in any world, but I try to, even when I'm writing the scripts, I, I try to make the audience or the the reader feel like uh, they're getting lost in the, in the world, even on the page, you know? So I, that's why I write so descriptive scripts, including what kind of sounds. I was going to, because I think it, 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 it's, it's weird to think that people wouldn't treat it with any importance because to me, sound is, is, is about the here and now. It's almost like I can, you can, I can watch a bad looking film that sounds great, but I can't watch a good looking film that sounds awful. If that's that makes right. sense. Yeah, yeah. I think um, people just, just they become uh, wrapped up in the acting and, and and the visuals, and they just just forget about it. But it's, it's not only you're absolutely right when you say it's about the it it conjures up the here and now with, with, with sound. But it also you can get into the mind of a person as well with the sound. You know, you can you can make people think that they're inside someone's mind almost. You know, there's a scene in the in the the whole, whole second half of the canal is like that, but the, 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 there's a scene in the in the very brief scene in the western where the preacher wakes up, and we go into a, like a daydream or hallucination, you know. And with sound, you can feel like you're in his head, you know. And then he, uh, it goes to a shocking moment, and then we're back into the reality of the sound. So uh, I love it what you can conjure up, and it can make images look feel better. It can make it can really make a film, you know. No, no, I was, I was glad. I've, I'm, I'm fortunate enough at home. I've got, um, I've got Gail Floor, Gail for floor standard speakers. Oh yeah, great. Through an amp when I was listening to you, so I was pumping it out. Wow, uh, that's amazing. Um, I mean, because I, I remember when I saw um, Hereditary, and and I, I saw that at the cinema, and and I was about to, I was going to turn round to tell somebody to shut up. Oh yeah, yeah. And there's yeah. nobody there. It was the sound. It was that whispering sound or something, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. It was very clever. Very clever. Yeah. And I, I think, liked Hereditary a lot. And I think that's, and, and I'm, I'm glad, I'm glad that, you know, for, for, for yours, because, because when, when you, I've never been, I've never been in, you know, 1800s America, um, and I've never been in a house where the wind's going to blow through it, even when the windows and doors are shut, and, 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 you know, the gloop, the gloop of the mud almost, if, if I was in that field, in that town, and it's been raining, and I've got to walk across town, that sound is going to be has got to be real, hasn't it, for me to? And if you if you omit it, you've kind of missed part of the experience, haven't you? Absolutely, and and the way I said it to the sound designer as well, it's it's like 
this is like an alien planet almost to us. It's so far removed from our reality. So we should bear that in mind, you know. We should really think about what what it must have been, what it must have sounded like, you know. And and but you know we were really lucky as well. I mean, I I wanted the muddy western, but I didn't count on that amount of mud. You know, it was just it was just it was incredible. I I told the production designer to have um hoses on standby so we could wet down the ground to get that muddy look but the the, the movie gods must have been uh, listening and laughing because we never got I could never got so much rain it was just raining every single day of the shoot and we were swimming in that mud you know you couldn't help but pick up that sound you know the actors were getting stuck in it their boots were getting stuck in it it was it was just is and the, the poor crew had to dig cables out of the mud and it was horrendous but it looked amazing so I was so happy you know it was it was a, uh, it was amazing. I was in my element. Was, a, a, a conversation me, me and my wife have when we, when we watch a film together is, is we we, we watch it and, it and once we begin to feel that we're in it, you go, I'd never survive there, would I? And, yeah. <laughs> and you def, and you definitely get that from Never Grow Old. It's sort of you, yeah. you 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 feel like this is this is a time so removed from what I understand living to be. Yeah. They must have been tougher then, or something, you know, because because they remember they didn't have any thermal clothing or anything like that. It was it was just layers of clothes is, is how they kept warm, you know. And they don't keep you warm. The the actors were their feet were literally turning blue in, in the. I was going to say that you, I don't think I don't believe that you ever were warm. I just think you were just not just a little less colder. You just accepted that you were going to be freezing, and maybe maybe at night you'd huddle against the fire, almost on top of the fire. That was the closest you get to feeling warm, you know. And it must have been damp and muddy, and uh, must have been horrendous. No, I would have been dead in a week, yeah, definitely. Now, look, uh, Never Go Old is a fantastic uh, modern western, um, a contemporary western, I should say, um, and uh, thoroughly enjoyed it. Uh, it's a ve- it's out now, and um, it's. I know you can rent it via Prime, Amazon Prime, but is it is it physically out on DVD as well? Yeah, it's on DVD. I think it's in HMV uh, in the UK, and uh, and it's on iTunes as well. You never know. I mean, they got very little. Uh, I'm not sure what happened there, but the uh, distributor did very little to no advertising for it in the UK. It was very strange. Since we got so ama- such amazing reviews in the US and in uh, France and anywhere else it's played, you know, so. I'm not sure. Maybe that's just the, that's the way things are now. You know, people. Uh, I've often discovered films that um, on iTunes, whatever. I just take a chance on them, and you think, why hasn't this film? Uh, you know, well, why haven't people been talking about this? It's just because uh, the distributors don't put any push into it, or for whatever reason. I don't know what that is. Well, I'm hoping that plenty, pe- plenty more people get to find Never Go Old like I did. It's uh, a wonderful piece of cinema. Oh, thanks a million. Appreciate that. Well, look, thanks very much for giving us your time on the podcast. Thanks, Jared. Good to talk to you again.